Blog Talk Radio. Don't Let It Go Unheard, and it's where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism is the philosophy that uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. Uh, Today's October 9th, and I have on the agenda today discussing Obama's lies about jobs, gun violence, and more. I've got a number of stories that I plan to discuss. Uh, My big stumbling block this morning was that, I think this is unprecedented, but WordPress was not giving me access to the blog post where I put all of the program notes for at least a half an hour during the crucial time period where I was rushing to finish my post. So if you go to my blog right now at don'tletitgo.com, what you will see is first the URL for this show that you're listening to right now if you're listening to me live, and then you'll see a list of uh, mostly complete. I had mostly completed my show notes, um, so all the links to the stories and things that I want to talk about today Uh, If you want to comment on any of these, I invite you to call in during this show, and it's 760-888-5817. Again, the number to call is 760-888-5817. If you're listening to this on the recorded podcast later, chances are I will have fixed that ugly blog post that doesn't have all the introductory material that I usually put. So as I said, if you go to my blog right now, don'tletitgo.com, what you'll see is just the you know bare link with the URL to this particular broadcast and then a bunch of links to news stories. And that's what my sausage looks like as I'm making it. But I figure I might as well put those up so that those of you who are listening live can do it. I finally got access to it again, I think two minutes before I went on the air. So that was my one stumbling block. Hello to Ed, John, and just Jean, uh, as well as I see Rob and Roger and selfishness over there, a new, I think a new presence in the chat room, Dave Fisco, David Fisco. So welcome and thank you for joining me here for the live show. I'm sorry I've had all this scheduling difficulty. And in fact, I was actually thinking I might have to uh, postpone today's show because I've been having all this issue. I've been boring you a little bit with my kidney saga. Um, I, I actually got a call on Wednesday from my doctor who said, oh, by the way, you didn't know this, but you have an, an infection in your kidney, and so you have to go out and get this prescription and start taking it, antibiotics, which none of us like to overconsume antibiotics, I assume. Uh, they wreak havoc on your gut, and they also, you know, if you take them needlessly, will 
result in drug-resistant bacteria, antibiotic-resistant bacteria, which is no good. So I wasn't happy about this, and I started taking it. And then I've been having pain again in my kidney over the last couple days. And is it because he told me I have it, so it's psychological? What I think, what I figured out it probably is, is that because I'm taking antibiotics four times a day and I'm taking probiotics twice a day, I'm probably drinking more water and therefore I'm putting the pressure on this poor little kidney that's been beat up for decades. So I think that's probably why it is. But I was thinking, you know, do I have to go to the doctor? Maybe something's going really wrong. I think I'm good. So I'm here. I am feeling a little bit better than yesterday afternoon. So I'm, I made that judgment call. I was talking to uh, my friend Debbie earlier today and saying, what do you think? What do you think? You know, there's this and then there's this. And, well, it's probably this. And what do you think? Do I have to rush into the doctor? No, I think I'm here. So um, that's my story. But, yeah, I do want to talk about Obama. And in particular, what I latched on to was this press conference that he gave last week. And it ties into a number of the stories that are current right now. Um, if I don't even know if you watch these things from him, but I go ahead and I print them out at the whitehouse.gov website. I'm, I'm glad that they make these available to print out because it's so much better to read them than to have to watch them. But last Friday he talked about jobs data, about a so-called obstructive Congress, and about gun control, all of which are still important in the news right now. And so we want to kind of dissect a little bit of what he has said here. First of all, at the beginning, he decided he wanted to brag about the jobs data. And he says, and this is, you know, last Friday he was announcing this. He says, first of all, we learned today that our businesses created another 118,000 new jobs in September, which means that we now have had 67 straight months of job creation, 13.2 million new jobs in all, and an unemployment rate that has fallen from a high of 10% down to 5.1%. And he says these long-term trends are obviously good news, particularly for every American waking up each morning and heading off to a new job. So he makes it sound as if we have optimistic jobs data that we're looking at, when in fact, if you looked at some of the more objective headlines about what the jobs report meant, then you saw that things are not so rosy. Um, first of all, what I'm reading from here is businessinsider.com. It, this story was released last Friday, the same day that Obama was giving this conference. They're all looking at the same data. They're all looking at, from, looking at it from different aspects. This story starts out by saying that the U.S. economy added 142,000 jobs in September. So I don't know where Obama has the 118, but that's really not the most important thing. Uh, economists have a certain expectation about adding jobs, and somehow if the um, actual numbers fall short of the expectations of the economists, that's more important than the actual number if you talk to the experts. So they had been expecting 200,000 jobs and it fell significantly short. Now, they said that the unemployment rate held, held steady at 5.1%, but if you've listened to this show and if you listen to any show that actually picks apart what that number actually means, you know that the most important number that we really should be looking at, the one that seems to be the most objective for comparison, is the so-called labor force participation rate. 
And while Obama was sitting here at a press conference, starting out by congratulating himself on jobs data, the labor force participation rate fell in September to 62.4%, which is, according to businessinsider.com, the lowest since October 1977 the lowest since October 1977. So Obama's out there bragging about jobs. And yeah, okay, new jobs are, quote, created. Created by whom? What kind of jobs? Are they, you know, so-called jobs created by the government, which aren't really jobs? Um, Yeah, how many jobs were destroyed by regulations from Obama? I just saw a headline. I think it might be one of the stories. Rob Abiera is awesome at sharing a bunch of stories with me and then I often only get to a fraction of them so I apologize for that but I take a look at them and I think one of the ones he sent me was about OSHA um, Occupational Safety and Health Administration or whatever they are putting out all these regulations and they overregulate even by the standards of people who believe in regulations and kill jobs so where's the data on how many jobs are killed versus created Anyway, as I said, that 5.1% that Obama keeps trotting out there is not meaningful. The most meaningful is the labor force participation rate. This tells us the share of Americans over 16 who are either working or looking for a job. Many people just don't work. They give up entirely. And that number is at 62.4%. Only those Americans over 16 62.4% of those are either working or looking for a job, and it is terrible. John in the chat room says that many businesses have already started hiring for the holidays, but those are usually only temp jobs. Yes, that's true. Uh, Motive Power says more people on the wagon, less people pulling the wagon. Precisely. That is precisely. Um, Rob likes uh, my questioning ability under my... Uh, flailing kidney condition. I can I can still ask the right question of the, yeah. How many jobs are being destroyed while supposedly a certain number of them are being created? That is the most day. <laughs> Motive power says one day they'll stop pulling. Yeah, so it does. It definitely definitely sounds familiar. Now, so then after he brags about the jobs data, then he's you know he, and he tries to imply that we're doing well. And again, he is. He's been on this economy, right? He, How many more days do we have of Obama? It's like a year and some odd, I don't know, a year and a few months or something. So we've had nearly seven years of Obama, and he's bragging about the jobs data. And on his watch, we are now at the lowest labor force participation rate since 1977. And he's trying to say that somehow he's doing well. It is ridiculous. But then he says, we would be doing even better if we didn't have to keep on dealing with unnecessary crises in Congress every few months. Now, the translation is Congress isn't doing exactly every single thing that he wants to the letter whenever he wants it. So, you know, he he wants a blank check for the whole rest of his presidency. And if he doesn't get it, he blames anything on Congress. He says this is especially important right now because although the American economy has been Chugging along at a steady pace, he says, the Fed doesn't dare even raise interest rates above zero because of this economy. But no, it's it's chugging along at a steady pace. He says, much of the global economy is softening. We've seen an impact on our exports 
he says, which was a major driver of growth for us, particularly at the beginning of the recovery. And so our own growth could slow if Congress does not do away with some of the counterproductive austerity measures that they have put in place. And he says, if Congress doesn't avoid the kind of manufactured crises that shatter consumer confidence and could disrupt an already skittish global economy. Oh, they're saying 468 days. Oh, 456 says selfishness. Yeah, we we like any, the fewer the days, the better, as we'll see in a, in a little bit with respect to gun control legislation. Uh, apparently what they did last week, the Republicans kind of kicked the can down a road a bit, and they passed an operating budget for 10 weeks. And he's saying, well, you better use the 10 weeks well because we need to pass something longer than 10 weeks. He's insisting he's not going to sign anything that goes for you know something as short as 10 weeks next time that, that they've got to give him a long budget. Um, so he's trying to say that the whole thing is Republicans, that they have austerity measures, which is ridiculous. But the biggest thing is for him to imply that it is Republicans' fault that they can't get an actual spending bill negotiated. Um, he's saying we, we can't just keep on kicking down the road without solving any problems or doing any long-term planning for the future. He says that's true for our military, our domestic programs, the American people, the American families deserve better, and we can't grow faster and the economy can improve if, if Congress acts with dispatch. It's going to get worse if they don't. And he says he's not going to sign another one. He says, we purchased ourselves an additional 10 weeks. We need to use them effectively. Um, and, you know, he says, uh, keep in mind, a few years ago, both parties put in place harmful automatic cuts that make no distinction between spending we don't need and spending we do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, this is all in the context of him blaming the problems on Congress, right? He's blaming them. They're obstructionists. They're the ones who are preventing the budget bills from going through. But then you see this news story that has been out there. Uh, it's been reported by Examiner and also now by Breitbart. That's where I link to. Again, if you go to don'tletitgo.com, you can see all the stories that I'm discussing. Headline is, Obama squeezes Republicans' throats on defense spending. And what is he squeezing them about? He says, and this is on Monday, right? So on, on, you know, last Friday, he's saying, oh, you know, we got only 10 weeks. We better really make them count. And, you know, boy, those Republicans, they better stop being so obstructionist. And they're so difficult, right? And then on Monday, this is what he announces. He says, President Obama is going to veto a defense authorization bill if it doesn't close down Guantanamo Bay. They have to close down Guantanamo Bay. Now, what do you do with all of the terrorists who are being held in Guantanamo Bay? Uh, you can either release them, which he loves doing. He loves just releasing them back to their home countries so that they can find their way back here and commit terrorist attacks. Another headline out there that I didn't put into the notes is that there are people who have uh, nuclear weapons on the black market and that those people are seeking ISIS you know, authorities, representatives, or whoever these people are to sell these nuclear weapons to, right? But no, go ahead and release these guys. The other option, of course, is to put them in our own prisons 
And do you think that if they're in our own prisons that they wouldn't be able to cause trouble from in our own prisons? Of course they would. That's why we keep them in Guantanamo Bay. So Josh Ernest explained that the the House funding bill would be vetoed principally because of the irresponsible way that it funds our national defense priorities, but it also because of the efforts to prevent the closure of the prison at Guantanamo Bay. So he's saying that there's not going to be any defense authorization. Now, who is the one who is engaging in reckless crisis manufacturing? Why does he ha- does he think he should be able to get a closing of Guantanamo Bay when there is a Republican majority in both the House and the Senate? Now, gee, why does he think that? He thinks because with everything else that he's done throughout his presidency uh, and, and since we've had this Republican majority in both the House and the Senate, he's been getting what he wants. It's funny, I was talking about dog training uh, with a friend the other day too. And with dog training, right, if you, you know, if he keeps fighting and fighting and fighting and then they give him what he wants when he really shouldn't even be getting what he wants because he doesn't have the majority in both, but they go ahead and give it to him, he's reinforced and he's going to keep pressing for what he wants. So imagine, and he doesn't care if we have any defense budget, not at all, right? I mean, he's he's over there. He's letting Putin with, you know, Putin and his horrible motives go over there and deal with ISIS. He doesn't. He, didn't do anything at all to deal with ISIS. In fact, there was an, you know, a headline today which is that the Pentagon has discontinued the program where we would take any sort of a secular rebel contingency in Syria and help train them and arm them to to fight ISIS. We are discontinuing that program after spending 500 million dollars. But no, you know, that's okay. You know, Republicans, defense spending is your thing. So, you know, if you want to be the obstructionist. And last Friday, he teed it up as, okay, you know, it's your guy's fault. You gave 10 weeks. Let's use the 10 weeks responsibly. Oh, and by the way, I'm not going to fund defense unless you give me exactly what I want. Yeah, he doesn't fear defunding America's national security, says Breitbart. And they second, Obama does not fear Republicans in Congress. Two messages. He does not fear them at all. Why not? Why? Because our Congress, especially our House, has not used the power of the purse the way that it was supposed to as a check on this runaway president who's who's doing things that he shouldn't. Ed in the chat room says, maybe there isn't enough money in the defense bill for fighting the weather. Yeah, that too. That too. Um, in, later in the show, we're going to talk about the mayor of New York, de Blasio. And, you know, if they're not spending money, they're spending time, precious time and resources on so-called fighting global warming or fighting the weather. John Kenny says he's still blaming Woodrow Wilson for all of this runaway garbage. Yeah. Um, Anyway, it says the NDAA has been authorized for five decades running. The current NDAA fully funds the military through a workaround measure thanks to Obama's demands that a huge chunk of sequestration cuts come from defense funding. Uh, now the Democrats are complaining that the workaround measure isn't good enough. And uh, he said they say Republicans should bust open the bank again. Uh, but, I, I mean, are Republicans going to hold strong? Who who knows? The other thing Republicans are dealing with, many of you have been following this drama. You know, Boehner said he was going to step down. I guess he got through the 10 weeks for Obama but wasn't able to do anything more. 
And there's a hint now that he is thinking of staying only because uh, McCarthy, I believe, was the lackey that they wanted to put in his place, but is now out because of an affair, an extramarital affair that was broken perhaps by Charles Johnson in the last few days. The latest news on who is going to be Speaker of the House is something that I also gave you a link to over at, at the blog. And it is now they're looking for Paul Ryan to actually run for the Speaker's job. And they say that he has the potential, again, this is New York Times perspective, he has the potential of um, unifying the Republican Party. What do you guys think of that? You think Paul Ryan can unify the party? I don't know. Um, but yeah, Kevin McCarthy of California had to drop his bid for speaker. Reports are that he had to do that because of an extramarital affair. Otherwise, we might be looking at just basically John Boehner number two. Uh, you know, John Boehner without the suntan and maybe without the drinking habit, and that's what you would have had. But now we've got Boehner and McCarthy. They're trying to, it's they who are motivated to do this, so that kind of lets you know what they think Ryan would do if he was there. Um, They want him to run. Also, um, several lawmakers, they say that they're believing that uh, Ryan is softening his position and would return to Wisconsin to discuss the situation with his family and closest advisors. So we may have Paul Ryan whom I have seen as somebody who says one thing in terms of his ideology and then does another, uh, in terms of his ability to understand complex economic data, he has definitely shown himself to uh, you know, be very adept at that. But, oh, Vox.com says just Gene, Vox.com suggested Mitt Romney for speaker. There were a few of us on Twitter Actually, somebody else did it. I'm not claiming responsibility for it, but somebody nominated Jerome Brook, head of the Ayn Rand Institute for Speaker of the House. Little known fact is that anybody could be Speaker of the House. So yes, Mitt Romney could, even though he doesn't presently hold any political office, much less being there. Um, <laughs> Ed in the chat room says, we should start a movement to draft Bosch as Speaker of the House. Yeah, cartoonist Bosch Boston, who often calls into this show. I don't know if he's going to be able to call in today or not. Um, I was talking to him earlier, and he says he might not be able to do a schedule conflict. Uh, by the way, though, if you are, you know, again, if he doesn't call today, you'll be missing him. So you may need to do this anyway. But tomorrow night, I understand, on the Fox News channel, they're going to broadcast a Stossel special on free speech. It's called something like Censorship in America, Censoring Speech in America. I can't remember the the title exactly, but... Bosch uh, is going to be on that special, as well as Ian Hersia Lee, Mark Stein, and maybe a couple others as well. So that is 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Fox News channel. Go ahead and check that out, especially if Bosch doesn't have the opportunity to call in here today. So check that out. But you can always keep up with what he is doing by going to his blog at Faustin, F-A-W-S-T-I-N, faustin.blogspot.com. And I guess you could write him and say that he should be Speaker of the House. I mean, why not? You know, anybody can do it. The other day we were nominating Yaron Brook on Twitter, and 
you know, first first of all, there is no residency or citizenship, excuse me, citizenship requirement or birth requirement. He's a citizen. He's a U.S. citizen, but he was not born here. So, you know, the story goes, we've always been talking, you know, Jerome Brook for president. He can't be president because he was not born here, nor was he born to American citizens overseas or whatever, you know, in a different country the way Ted Cruz was. So he's not eligible. Uh, but why not Speaker of the House? Your own brook would be excellent. Of course, absolutely no legislation would get passed, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, Censored in America says Motive Power. It's called Censored in America. And he put a link over here in the chat room if you're following along in the live show in the chat. I'll go ahead and uh, drop that link onto my program notes later as well when I fix up that nice post over at don'tletitgo.com. So, um, but you can Google it. Censored in America, Fox News. It's docile. You can find it. And just watch it. Watch Fox News at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on on Saturday. So, yeah, so now they're saying, you know, Mr. Ryan, he's been vetted. He has experience chairing not one but now two different committees. So he's sort of the consensus candidate, they're saying. What do you think? What do you think? Uh, Selfishness? Was uh, the comment enough with the Catholics having to do with Paul Ryan? I guess he's Catholic. Uh, David in the chat room says, we know Ryan isn't above prostituting objectivism to get what he wants. Yeah, certainly hasn't been acting consistently with it since the time. And and at a certain point, he renounced his fondness for Rand, didn't want to be associated. But yeah, um, your own, you think he's Catholic, selfishness? Okay. You know, I mean, for the foreseeable future, Pretty much any candidate who's electable is probably going to be religious of some stripe. So it's not so important to me whether they profess a particular religion, although Islam I would have some problem with. But any of the Judeo-Christian religions, if, if you you know they said it, it would be more important to me to watch the person in practice and see whether they seem to primarily be acting according to reason and consistent with the principle of individual rights or not, and then you'd have to make that judgment call. As you see, if you're looking at those program notes over at my blog at don'tletitgo.com, towards the bottom, I tend to put the good news stories, and I have at least one story having to do with Ted Cruz. If you haven't seen it yet, Ted Cruz, was really good at, in effect, cross-examining someone from Sierra Club. They were, I guess, uh, doing some sort of a hearing in in Congress. And he was asking this person from Sierra Club, he said, okay, you know, I know you've come out in favor of the global warming position, the position that, you know, humans have caused significant global warming, as they call it, you know, warming of the climate. And nonetheless, there's this data over the last 18 years that, says, no, there hasn't been any significant data, you know, warming. And he kept pressing the Sierra Club member and and the representative. And he says, well, if you actually saw the science for yourself, you know, saw the numbers for yourself, would you change your mind? And the person just like a broken record kept saying back, "Um, I am agreeing with the 97% who believe that, you know, there's, anthropogenic, global warming, blah, 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 whatever he said. But, you know, he he kept saying, I'm with the 97%, I'm with the 97%. And even though Cruz kept putting it as a question, look, if I put proof in front of your face, I put real data in front of your face 
that in effect contradicts your position, you're not going to change your mind. And the person said, no, I will not change my mind. So again, there's a lot of Ted Cruz skeptics out there. And I, I don't, again, really get what the point is about, you know, why they're so, there's people who are really anti-Ted Cruz. They don't like something about his attitude, maybe his self-confidence. I don't know what it is, but he's got the substance, right? He's got the substance. There's another article that I wanted to put in that list, and I'm not sure if it made it through all of my hard uh, headaches that I had dealing with WordPress this morning. And I think it was National Review. It's an article that Bosch Faustin sent me. And yeah, yeah, I don't... I don't think that it's here. But what it is, it's talking about how very well orchestrated the Ted Cruz campaign is. And that when he really kind of, you know, turns on the burner, so to speak, that people should, you know, take him seriously, that they should really kind of realize that he is a serious contender in this race because of how well run, well thought out, well organized and well staffed his campaign is. So I think that, uh, you know, between those two things, just take a look. And I, I look at those things as good news. Why? Because I think that Cruz, despite the fact that he's religious, represents some actual real hope for the country were he to get elected. So check that out. Yeah, just Jean agrees with me with the Ted Cruz versus Sierra Club. I mean, it just shows the representative of the Sierra Club to be completely devoid of rationality. And, you know, Cruz is doing the most basic thing in the world, saying, look, I'm going to put the data in front of your face that contradicts your position. Will you change your mind? And apparently not. Uh, Ed in the chat room here says, I think most Beltway conservative pundits are scared of Cruz because Cruz is clearly much smarter than they are. And Justine says, I agree, Cruz is smart, and he also takes action. What I love is you've got someone like Alan Dershowitz at Harvard who is perfectly comfortable complimenting Cruz on his intellectual ability based on his performance when he was a student there at Harvard Law School. Rob says, wasn't it the president of Sierra Club? It, it may have been. I just I, When I saw the video, I was thinking Sierra Club flunky, whoever it was. But, yeah, it may have been the president. And here's, you know, the president of Sierra Club saying, basically, I'm going to stick with the 97%. I mean, after all, they're the majority and they back my agenda. So I'll just go ahead and appeal to the authority. That's what it is. And that was what Pratik, who posted that story for me on the Don't Let It Go on Herd page, he said, you know, appeal to authority much? And yeah. Um, Justine says, yeah, it was the president. I mean, that is really really humiliating for anybody who watches it the person says look i don't i don't go with the data i go with what the majority of the vetted accepted scientists in the world say you know the government funded science i mean so much science now is funded by government that when you say okay 97% of scientists it doesn't even mean that much anymore because they're all you know they're they're all funded and and backed and biased by this so anyway uh I'm wondering, oh, how do we get there? We got there because we were talking about this controversy over speaker, and I was responding to selfishness in the, in the chat room about Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan could have been a Catholic and could have stuck to his guns and decided that, yes, he 
was not only an admirer of Rand, but that he would behave that way consistently. And this is what Ted Cruz behaves like. Ted Cruz behaves exactly like a super intelligent, highly compartmentalized admirer of Ayn Rand, who is also, unfortunately from from my perspective, extremely religious and very much in favor of pushing certain uh, policy agendas based on that religion. The big question that remains really is how is Ted Cruz going to fare as someone who is religious when he comes up against policy challenges to his uh, positions, for example, on free market measures? You know, How can you do away with a progressive income tax and the IRS necess- you know, that's necessary to administer it, et cetera, when, you know, in effect, you accept religion that has as its base in ethics altruism, uh, you know, the idea that we should be sacrificing for the poor and the needy and et cetera. Um, how is he going to defend that? I don't know. You know, he's let slip into his rhetoric sometimes references to Rawls. And Rawls, of course, is an egalitarian. So how can he maintain the idea that we should have individual rights, you know, that at least would mean getting rid of the IRS, uh, you know, repealing every single word of Obamacare and all sorts of great things. And at the same time, he's going to maintain this, you know, religious ethics. I I don't know how he's going to do it. I think I'm optimistic that he will be able to do it in today's country. But I mean, we'll see. Um, As I said, National Review posted an excellent analysis piece talking about how well organized, thought out, staffed, etc. his campaign is. Selfishness in the chat room says, look how the contradiction affected John Roberts. Yes, and then also Cruz was, and he admits it, guilty of supporting the nomination of John Roberts. Not initially not not initially saying, yes, choose John Roberts for the Supreme Court, but once he was nominated, supporting that candidacy, uh, you know, to make sure that it was ratified. Hmm. Oh, we're talking about the movie The Martian. I have not seen The Martian, so I cannot comment on it, unfortunately. And I have avoided looking at the spoilers so far. There's a, there's a lot of commentary going on on Facebook about The Martian, and I'd like to see it before I read those spoilers. Um, oh, Roger has a question here in the chat room. Um, a Christian on a phone campaign. Let me see if I can get to the question. I have to scroll up a bit to see if I can see the question. Um, is it right to lie about being Christian to be elected to political office? No, I wouldn't think so. Um and you think that that is the case with Obama? Is that the idea? I don't know who it is, but um yeah, I don't I I would not ever do that. I could not see anybody wanting to do that. Um it is probably too soon for an atheist to be elected to political office, although I think it might be fun to make a try, go out there, be an outspoken atheist and run. Um and and see how you do and just be honest and make common cause and speak with everybody much like Ted Cruz speaks and you might be able to get it done because he's pretty good. You know, we've seen various videos where I'm trying to remember who it was. It was uh, 
Code Pink or something is an organization, a, a liberal organization that crashed one of his events, and he ended up coming into the debate with them. So, um, just Jean says maybe Cruz can make a case for each individual being important in the eyes of God. Certainly, he could try to do something like that. But nonetheless, there is within religion a, and this is something that Obama himself has latched onto at times. You know, to try to you know, get some of his egalitarian agenda passed. He talks about the fact that it is a moral duty. Ed Powell says, the latest poll showed atheists were the second least trusted group, one percentage point above Muslims, and present company is accepted. I tend to agree. Yeah. Now, why is it um, that this is? You think that a lot of atheists would not be trustworthy. I mean, there are a number of people who say without religion, there is no ethics. And in fact, I don't believe in religion, so I don't really believe in much ethics. So let me just get away with whatever I can. And I've seen that as well among people who aren't, you know, kind of adherents to a rational philosophy. You could be an Aristotelian and still be quite good. You could be an objectivist and be better. Um, yeah, Justine says people think atheists are devoid of morality. And then the problem is, Justine, that many of them are. I had remembered having that issue in college that my choice of people to date would be either someone who is religious or somebody who was immoral and or, you know, at least amoral. And it was really infuriating for me because I had been in a moral, someone who, who strongly believed that it was important to be moral. As an atheist, I had been that way without knowing about Rand since age 12, like explicitly decided I am an atheist, but I also think it's important to be moral. And in fact, I can be a good person while being an atheist. I'm a, a little defensive about it at age 12 a bit, but, um, you know, that this this was right and that I could be a good person. I had a very rudimentary sense of what being a good person was at the time, but it, it worked. It, it did a good job for, for quite a while. <sighs> Rob says, yeah, Ben Carson's argument, he decided that, yeah, if you don't have religion, then you have no morality. But, yeah, we're we're all on this right now. Why? Because we were talking about Paul Ryan as speaker. I have no idea who the Speaker of the House is going to be. It may be that the House and all of the inner, you know, machinations that go on and everything that we don't know about make it such that nobody half decent could be elected as speaker now so that even if we get rid of Boehner we're going to get somebody yucky who's going to be in there but I'm hoping we get somebody at least somewhat better someone who is willing to stand up to Obama who knows um, you know would, would Paul Ryan change his tune at all if he ended up taking that speakership I I really don't know uh, what what does anybody know about Paul Ryan's record of late? I haven't heard very much of him. They say, you know, he's the head of two committees, but I don't know. Yeah, if you have any input on that or anything else, you can call in. But let me get to another part of what Obama lied about or at least didn't tell the full truth about in his press conference last Friday. He trotted out the same statistic that he's been trotting out for a while, I know at least that it was part of the State of, U State of the Union address earlier this year. He says, since I took office, we've cut our deficits by two-thirds. 
He says the deficit has not been going up. It has been coming down precipitously. I don't know if that would be the right word to use in his speech. Precipitously usually means like it's bad. Um, But he says they're below the average deficits for the last 40 years. So let me go ahead and give you the data on that. I've got a PolitiFact article and this one was posted actually earlier this year when he first trotted out the statistic. It was uh, January 20th at 10.57 p.m. So that was after, I guess, he did his little State of the Union address. He, he you know, he said, we've cut it for two-thirds, blah, blah, blah. Now, of course, don't confuse deficit with debt. Um, they're related, but they're not the same, et cetera. We have the national debt right now exceeding $18 trillion dollars. And the way that the White House is breaking down the deficit in order to give you this statistic about the two-thirds thing, right, is they're showing you the deficit as a percentage of GDP, right? A percentage of GDP, so not actual dollars. And apparently economists, economists, they think this is a valid way of analyzing the debt because it factors in the economy's changes over time. So as long as you have a deficit that's a small percentage. But here's the deal, right? Obama has been measuring himself against the deficit, percentage of GDP of the deficit, since of 2009. So 2009 was the budget year where, where I guess he took office right in the middle. And apparently that year where as a percentage of GDP, the deficit was 9.8%. So we were spending nearly 10% per year of GDP extra over what revenue the government was taking in. That was an unprecedentedly high year. So the fact that it has reduced as a percentage of GDP since then is not as meaningful as he likes to imply. So there's this heading on the PolitiFact.com article where they say, well, why this drop may not be so exciting. They say, well, They say, while Obama's math may be correct, it's missing some important caveats. First, it's important to note that the deficit swelled in 2009, hence the steady drop. In 2008, it was $458 billion, which is uh, 3.1% of GDP. Those deficits are smaller than the ones the country is facing today. They say the 2009 fiscal year represented a huge jump in the deficit, partly because of the massive stimulus program that they did to jumpstart the economy. And look how well that has worked for us, right? So a University of California uh, at Berkeley professor of economics and law says that, um, you know, it's not that the large deficit was his fault, but, you know, if he used the 2008 deficit as a frame of reference, the comparison would be quite different. Also, they said that the 2009 fiscal year that Obama keeps using as the benchmark was the first year of office, not a good starting point because he had little control over that. Um, the other thing is they say the important question is if Obama has put the government on a path that will keep deficits stable. And he says, and the answer is no. Why? Because entitlement programs such as Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security have not had substantial perform. The long-term forecast for the deficits is going to be much bigger. So they're saying that the deficit would be equal to 3.7% of GDP in 2029 
and 6.5% of 2039 if we don't reform what's going on. This is a higher deficit than any year between 1947 and 2008. So the path that Obama has put us on is huge. The other thing that this probably doesn't take into account as well is the increases in so-called revenue, i.e. taxes, i.e. stealing from the American people over the last year. If you remember, there was a headline a couple months ago about this unprecedented level of revenue that has been coming in to the government. So he's bragging about the deficits, but he's spending more than ever. Why? Because he's taking in more than ever by taxing us to death. So there's that as well. So he says, you know, Congress has to do its job. They can't flirt with another shutdown. Boy, I've been so good because, you know, I'm producing jobs and I've cut the deficit and boy, I'm so awesome. Right. Now, what do we got here? Uh, The real question is, is our borrowing going down? No, I would say most definitely not. Um, Yeah. And just Jean says, yes. She says, last I knew the deficit reduction is expected to be a temporary thing before it skyrockets again in later years. All politicians love to kick the can down the road, and Obama has done exactly the same thing. Uh, Ed says about Paul Ryan, total establishment type, pro-bailouts, pro-expanding government. Yeah, so if we get Paul Ryan, it's not going to be any better. I couldn't imagine if it's Mitt Romney that it would be much better either. Mitt Romney, the architect of the Massachusetts model. Well, not the architect, but the prime mover, let's say, behind the Massachusetts model for Obamacare. No, 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 no. Now, what question came to the mind here? Oh, is Ben Carson at all familiar with Ayn Rand? Yeah, I don't have any idea whether whether he is or not. Um, so the idea is to to make him familiar. He's very religious. I don't know. We'll see. But it, it would be good to at least educate him about the fact that there are a number of us atheists out here who are quite moral. I would love to do that. Definitely love to do that. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit more about Obama's speech and the various lies. One thing I wanted to get into, and I don't know if I'm actually competent to do it, is dissecting his statement on what's been going on with Russia in the Middle East. Because basically what um, Obama is implying over there is, you know, Assad really does have to go and... You know, Putin really needs to realize this and Putin should help to broker some sort of way for Assad to exit. Uh, And and supposedly Putin's supposed to broker this with both, I guess, Assad and Iran. I don't know how this is supposed to happen, but that this is somehow the reason that we also have to withdraw because the people who we were supporting there... Uh, were more intent on removing Assad than they were on actually fighting ISIS. So um, I don't know. You know, we we need to kind of see more of what's going on. The last I know, though, at least, is that this idea that we're going to arm some people within Syria and hoping that they're going to help us fight ISIS, that that is not going to go on any longer. But what damage has already been done? you know, with the $50 million, I mean, excuse me, $500 million. We've spent $500 million on that. And I, it's it's just unbelievable. Um, oh, 
the someone named Sarah in the chat room is saying that uh, Ben Carson just doesn't come across as very intelligent, especially about politics and stuff. Um, linking gun control and Nazis. He, he really he has a lot of good positions on some things, but in terms of his ability sometimes to back up those positions, it I mean he he sticks with them. But no. Um, the the other thing I wanted to talk about in this press conference, though, is that during the Q&A portion, he was asked uh, about gun control. And he, again, pushed some of the line about the fact that supposedly the gun violence here in the U.S. is, you know, somehow much more, the problem that we have here, much more than there was in Europe. Um, you know, one thing, I guess, uh, Jeb Bush was asked about the situation in Oregon and he was also asked, Jeb Bush was asked about the drive to take action, you know, some sort of gun control in light of what happened in Oregon. And Bush said, look, stuff happens. There's always a crisis and the impulse is always to do something and it's not always the right thing to do. End quote. Now, this is the kind of statement that you would expect from Jeb Bush. It's very lame. It doesn't have any particular content about the right to bear arms or about the effectiveness of individuals owning guns that they use in self-defense. This is the sort of thing that you could probably get out of a Ted Cruz, but you cannot get out of a Jeb Bush. Anyway, at the press conference, it was this softball that was given to Obama. He was asked, how would you react to Governor Bush? And in his typical style, Obama responds first. He says, I don't even think I have to react to that one. And then everybody laughs. So that is what Ayn Rand used to call an argument from intimidation. What you do is you do some sort of sneer or laughter or whatever at the person's position without even trying to talk about what is wrong substantively with the position. You just laugh at it and and you intend to have the person dismiss it without even the necessity to, um, you know, actually come up with an argument of any kind. So whereas I'm looking at Bush's statement and saying, okay, it's kind of empty. It's kind of weak. You know, it's not always the right thing to do. He's not even talking specifically about what would be done. You know, any of the particular policies, do we need to increase background checks? What do we do with mental health? Uh, patients and their ability to get guns, no specifics. And then moreover, he doesn't talk about, you know, the importance of the right to bear arms. Um, That's the kind of thing I would like to see. So I gave you substance. Obama just laughed at him. And then he says, he says, I think the American people should hear that and make their own judgments. Of course, having, having heard him laughed at it, he says, based on the fact that every couple months we have a mass shooting And he says, and in terms of, and they can decide whether they consider that stuff happening, and he's making fun of it. He says, in terms of what I can do, I've asked my team, as I have in the past, to scrub what kinds of authorities do we have to enforce the laws that we have in place more effectively to keep guns out of the hands of criminals. Now, of course, that's a decent place to start, right, where you say, um, we already have laws on the books. Maybe we can see whether these laws were not enforced properly in the case in Oregon. I still don't know what the status was of the guns 
that the shooter in Oregon actually had. I haven't heard anything about that, whether he obtained them legally, illegally, what. If anybody knows anything and can put that in the chat room, that's great. Um, the only the only piece that I found current today was a, a field piece in the New York Times ab- about the shooting, and I'll get to it in a minute. Uh, are there additional actions, this is Obama continuing, are there additional actions that we can take that might prevent even a handful of these tragic deaths from taking place? So listen to that. You know, Can we use government force to prevent law-abiding citizens from exercising their right to bear arms? That's what additional actions mean that we can take, he says, that might prevent even a handful of these tragic deaths from taking place. So just a handful it's worth disarming an entire population. He says, but as I said last night, he was referring to the preemptive speech that he gave uh, the day of the shooting. He says, this will not change until the politics change and the behavior of elected officials change. He says, the main thing I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about this on a regular basis, and I will politicize it because our inaction is a political decision that we are making. Now, that is true, right? Um, if we don't pass additional gun control legislation, that is a political decision. If you act or you don't act, you are making a decision. So this is true. But the difference is is that many of us would say that we're making a good decision, and Obama, of course, thinks it's a bad decision. I am perfectly fine with not passing additional gun control legislation until you prove to me that it's something that's actually going to make a significant difference while preserving Americans' right to use uh, guns in self-defense. He says, the reason that Congress does not support even the modest gun safety laws that we propose, gun safety laws, that we proposed after Sandy Hook is not because the majority of the American people don't support it. Uh, You know, normally politicians are responsive, you know. He says, here you've got the majority of the American people think it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Let's trot out some statistics on that. Which particular uh, measures are we talking about? And are you describing the measures honestly when you conduct these polls? I doubt it. Uh, background checks, other common sense steps that would maybe save some lives couldn't even get a full vote. He says, and why is that? It's because of politics. Interest groups fund campaigns, feed people fear, you know, and blah, 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 blah. Um, and he actually singles out in this Q&A the NRA talking about basically how the anti-gun lobby if you want to call it that needs to learn from the NRA because you know after all the NRA represents a small minority but oh they're so motivated and the blah 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 so um let me let me see if I can get you where he talks about the uh the actual statistics of, of violence here. Um, yeah, this is, uh, he says, we're not going to stop all violence. Our homicide rates are just a lot higher than other places. He says that, by the way, have the same levels of violence. It's just you can't kill as many people when you don't have easy access to these types of weapons. Um, it's happening every single day, etc. But, you know, he he's basically trying to say, look, um, in other countries where they either ban guns or they have, you know, more gun control, that everything is peachy keen, fine, and dandy. And what I wanted to give you was an answer to him. And, in fact, this article was published 
as an answer to him. Let me see if I can give you the proper citation because I've printed it out in reader's view. Let me. Okay, let me get this. I'm sorry, I'm clicking around a little bit in my disarray. Um, Okay, comparing death rates from mass public shootings and mass public violence in the U.S. and Europe. And the credit goes to crimeresearch.org. Crimeresearch.org. And what he talks about, he says, yeah, in in an address to the nation, Obama has claimed that we as a country will have to reckon with the fact that this type of mass violence does not happen in other advanced countries. He says it doesn't happen in other places with this kind of frequency. Uh, Harry Reid made a similar statement on June 23rd of this year. This is Harry Reid, quote, The United States is the only advanced country where this type of mass violence occurs. Let's do something. We can expand, for example, background checks. We should support not giving guns to people who are mentally ill and felons. Now, um, show of hands in the chat room. How many people in the chat room would say that according to Obama and according to Harry Reid, I am mentally ill, right? I am mentally ill. What do you think? I don't know. Um, So here we go. Here are some statistics. Uh, One chart that we have here, again, it's over at crimeresearch.org. I put the link at my blog at don'tletitgo.com to all of these stories that I'm talking about. It's comparing annual death rate from mass public shootings. And they have the death rate Per million people. This is the thing that's important to keep in mind. Again, it's statistics are being massaged all over the place by politicians. So you need to look at the death rate per population figure. So it's death rate per million people from mass public shootings from 2009 up until June of this year. Okay, so this is a, over several years. And he's talking about it happening every couple months. So All of this is representative, right? And this included Sandy Hook and everything else. So Norway is the highest with 2.044 people dying per million people. Macedonia, number two, with 0.37. Serbia, 0.28. Slovakia, 0.201. Finland, 0.142. Belgium, 0.138. The Czech Republic, 0.133 per million people, and then the United States come in at 0.095. Sierra in the chat room says, there are too many guns in this country and there is no reason to have most of them. See, this is is the, uh, you know, at this show, and and, uh, welcome to the show, by the way. I haven't uh, heard of you before. I'm actually not sure if I'm pronouncing your name correctly, so you can tell me if it is Sierra Miedo. Um, But... And this show, the philosophy, the perspective that we're speaking from is Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism and of individualism. So what she would say is that in terms of how many guns there should be in the country, that that decision should be made by individual citizens, not by politicians. That politicians and government are there to redress violations of individual rights. And it is not a violation of rights to merely own a gun. Um, If people own a gun and they do not commit violent acts against other people or they do not immediately threaten, et cetera, with those guns, 
they're perfectly law-abiding citizens, you should be able to own guns. Now, you, there are limits on this. You shouldn't be able to, for instance, own a nuclear weapon, right? So there are objective, I think, limits that you could draw here um, within a range. But, you know, the point is, is that this decision should be made by the individual citizens. It is their right to self-defense and also the right to have our individual weapons serve as a check against a runaway government that is at stake here. So I would never have the bureaucrat making that decision. Now, we can all say, okay, really, who needs to own, you know, like 12 guns, okay? Because you can only hold two at the same time. You know, maybe you should only have two per person in your household or maybe three because one of them might jam or something, but when you need to fight off the bad guys, right? So, you know, whatever, we can make that judgment. We can make a judgment that we think some people own too many guns, but I do not think that there should be a government bureaucrat, elected or otherwise, who is authorized to make that judgment about this. Um, Certainly not with any sort of a reasonable range. You know, you could talk about, okay, if you're stockpiling and you look like you're actually getting ready for an armed revolt or something, but, you know, a simple amount of weapons, you know, that is within the range that would be used for self-defense and hunting purposes, we should be allowed to have. Um, but that, you know, that, that decision needs to be made primarily by people. Um, yeah, Ed says, don't put, uh, she was in favor of gun control, at least, at least in her later years. No, I'm not saying that there would be absolutely no gun control at all, but the idea that we don't have adequate gun laws in this country now is something that I'm pretty skeptical of. Uh, if you can show me a, you know, kind of a, a, a some sort of a background check that would be objective in terms of someone who would be mentally ill not having access to weapons. I'm very skeptical of the ability to do that, though, because I could see it being used as a weapon. Like I said, I asked you the rhetorical question earlier. How many people, um, you know, excuse me, how many people in the chat room think that Obama and Reed would deem me mentally ill? And therefore, I shouldn't be able to own a weapon. I mean, Obama is calling out the NRA publicly in press conferences, basically trying to say that people should not support them. And I think this is, you know, really a bad thing where he's basically, you know, calling out and criticizing people who are trying to defend our right to bear arms. Um, But the biggest point here is Obama is lying about the predominance of deaths from mass public shootings in United States versus other countries. Norway has over twice the number of deaths per million people than we do here in the United States. And again, if you count these, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We are eighth. We are eighth in the world. Um, Then we have the frequency of mass public shootings. Because frequency is something else that he seems to, you know, talk about. Oh, it's every couple of months, right? But even in frequency, the statistics do not back up what he says. We are ninth in the world. It's Macedonia, Serbia, Switzerland, Norway, Slovakia, Finland, Belgium, Czech Republic, and then United States. It is the frequency of attacks per million people that they're measuring here. So... 
Um, but yeah, we we uh, we definitely do need the right to bear arms. Um, is it a completely slippery slope such that if you have any control at all, then you are therefore at risk of losing all rights? I don't think necessarily so, but I am skeptical of any honest intention on the part of Obama and the Democrats at this point. And the idea that he's explicitly calling out the NRA as representing only a minority of the um, population, I think, is terrible. <laughs> Selfishness says, I am sane enough to improve, to approve of self-government. Yes, But some people would think that if you are in favor of self-government, that therefore you are, in fact, not sane. So we shall see. Um, you know, and what do you say to Obama when, for example, the biggest violence problem that is happening in Israel, for example, right now has nothing to do with guns, but everything to do with knives. There was one story, obviously it didn't, the link didn't come through, but it was, um, there, there have been five killed in Gaza as stabbing attacks and unrest continue in Israel and so-called Palestinian territories. Uh, but what is Obama thinking of doing? Obama is, despite the statistics, thinking of expanding background checks using his executive authority, using his pen and phone. Um, it says, in response to the latest mass shooting during his presidency, Obama is seriously considering circumventing Congress with his executive authority imposing new background check requirements for buyers who purchase weapons from high-volume gun dealers. Now, high-volume gun dealers are probably most gun dealers because if they are like any other business, they're being regulated out of business, which means only the big ones, i.e. the high-volume ones, would be able to survive. So this is going to apply to probably most gun dealers. It says, under the proposed rule change, dealers who exceed a certain number of sales each year would be required to obtain a license from the BATF and, ex and perform background checks on potential buyers. So he's just going to do this with his pen and phone. As the president heads to Roseburg, Oregon on Friday to comfort the survivors you know, at the college, the calculus around his most vexing domestic policy issue is shifting once again. Uh, after the shooting of Sandy Hook, um, the Vice President Biden devised a list of policy proposals in response, and there were 23 executive actions. You remember some of those executive actions involved information sharing among federal agencies, which he does by his pen and phone all the time. Your privacy is, is uh, at the mercy of his pen. Then they say uh, Obama closed two gun sale loopholes through executive authority, subjecting purchases by corporations and trusts to background checks and banning almost all re-imports of military surplus firearms to private entities. And now he says he's asked his team to quote, you know, scrub what kinds of authorities they have. We're going to find a way to do this. Um, they're going to try to work this out. So coming soon is going to be a huge new regulation, mandatory background checks on the so-called large-scale gun owners simply by using the authority of pen and phone. <laughs> John Roberts, maybe he'll confuse his pen and phone. 
and have some sort of an accident. Okay, I don't I don't even know if I want to read this one. Maybe it's time for me to take a call. I'm glad to have a caller here on the board. Hi, who's this? Hey, this is Ed. Oh, is this Ed? Hey, yeah, I, you know I love guns. I can't not call in when you're talking about guns, right? Uh <laughs> But but you know, am I right about the idea that whereas Rand uh, may have and probably did, um, you know, agree to some sort of gun control, nonetheless she would agree that we should have the right to own at least some weapons for self-defense purpose. Oh yeah, I mean I I've obviously made a study of basically every word uh, Ayn Rand ever said on the subject of guns, um, and. Uh, <laughs> You know, um, and I think I, she I, was, I you know, this is the thing, Ed, you know, I, for me, it hasn't been that hugely an important issue. But now that Obama is trying to take the rights away and then I guess Dana Loesch on Twitter got involved in something and a lot of people are joining the NRA in her honor. I'm actually thinking I want to join the NRA, which I haven't done before. Um, you know, it just didn't seem, but you know, the, if, if Obama is, you know, repeatedly calling out the NRA as a bad guy during his speeches, I think that is the biggest advertisement for NRA that you can have. And I think that we all need to join. Well, I'm a, I'm a life member of the NRA and have been for Beautiful. many years. Yay. Um, long and, ago, uh, long ago I was a member and then I let my membership lapse. I was not an, a lifetime member. And so I think I need to re up. I, um, I, you know, I read all of their publications, um, and I think they're very good uh, philosophically. Um, they are deliberately limited to that one area. Nice. Um, they, they do mention, uh, obviously, uh, freedom of speech is very important to them. So they're, they're, they, they did. Um, they're very pro Citizens United because, basically, you know, you know the case of Citizens United. Somebody who right. wrote an anti-Hillary book, the movie, and they were right. trying to ban it. Um, and of course, the NRA can't work if they are uh, if they can't, you know, back candidates. So they are very pro. Well, and this uh, is this is one too. of the this is one of the you know the beautiful things that Ted Cruz has done during his tenure in the Senate is he gave that one hour plus manifesto in favor of free speech on the floor. And you, yeah. if you remember, the Senate Democrats were trying to basically make it illegal for corporations to spend money on speech. Uh, which would totally uh, circumvent the First Amendment. And he talked about why money and are inextricably linked, right? That, that being able to be free to speak means to be able to spend money on speech. And this needs to be done not just by individuals, but by corporations and organizations. And so he, you know, very, very staunchly defended the whole Citizens United theory. Yeah, he, he, he's very good on that. He's very good on the... Uh... Second Amendment. He, he's really quite good on the Fourth Amendment too, and privacy issues um, uh, compared to most uh, congressmen. Uh, maybe perhaps Excellent. not as strong as as Rand Paul on it, but he he's quite good. Um, so I yeah, there are a number. Of, I, wanted, I was just going to say I just haven't heard that much from him on it. I don't know that he's not you know even as good as Rand Paul. He might be as good or better than Rand Paul because he might have a more thorough understanding of the legal basis for privacy than Rand Paul does. Who knows? Yeah, um, this article that you have uh, on the, in the Washington Post about what uh, Obama is going to do. Unfortunately, uh, the, uh, in a number of the gun laws, primarily the 
National Firearms Act of 1934 and the Gun Control Act of 1968 give the president a lot of power to regulate gun dealers. And mm. they also give the power, uh, essentially plenary power, to uh, the president and the attorney general to um, limit importation of firearms and firearms components unless they meet essentially arbitrary tests of being suitable for sporting purposes. And so what that means is that um, a whole, maybe half of the firearms that are sold in the United States are manufactured outside the country, and they could be stopped tomorrow on just a whim of the president and the attorney general. Now, of course, he would take a lot of heat for that. Uh, And the same with ammunition. This would drive up prices uh, dramatically um, for guns. Um, There's a lot of inexpensive, relatively inexpensive uh, firearms that um, are for sale today and and having them available keeps the prices down on the more popular lines the most popular firearms are are Glock they're made in Smyrna Georgia uh, but some components come in from overseas for the Glock so it's very difficult to uh, imagine if he implemented a complete import ban what that would do to the market it could um, it could really it, it could really disrupt it completely right. and in fact I the, the firearms enthusiast community has been scared to death that he would do such a thing uh, for years because we tend to understand what the law says. Um, on the background check thing, any dealer that deals in guns already has to do background checks, so I don't exactly know what that means. Um, uh, if, if I were to sell, uh, if, if you were to live next door to me and I were to sell you a gun, I would not have to do a background check on it. Um, right. I can't sell you uh, you in California. I'm in Virginia. I can't sell you one now. Um, but uh, if we both lived in the same state and uh, I could, I, and I'm not a dealer, I'm just an enthusiast. I could sell a used gun to you without going through a background check. And the, that is sort of the, the alleged loophole, this private transfers that he wants to get rid of. But it's weird in that, um, you know, what they've done in Washington state uh, where they have implemented a law by referendum pushed by Bloomberg and Al on this, uh, this sort of transfer thing. It, it basically means that uh, not only can't you sell a gun to a friend, but you can't even lend it to him or store hmm. it at his house when you, um, when you go on vacation, because that's a transfer. Uh, a friend of mine here, um, uh, was going on a long trip and he didn't have a gun safe. And so he decided, well, I'll, uh, can I leave my guns at your house? And I was like, sure, no problem. Automatic felony under the Obama gun background check thing, unless under under his proposed check free. That, that's under his proposed rules. Now think about this. Um, years sure. ago, this is maybe a couple decades ago or so, uh, there was a, a friend who I had who was an, a gun owner and um, knew that he was going through sort of an emotionally unstable period of his life. And he had the sense to say, I don't want to have my guns in my house right now. And he put his guns with a friend, had the friend keep the guns for some period of months or whatever. And then when he got through, you know, the emotional crisis, brought the guns back. And is that something that Obama wouldn't want to allow? I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Now, here in uh, where I live, which is a very built-up area, there are uh, 
there are dozens, you know, well, a dozen gun stores where you can go and get a uh, a background check, $25 a piece, right? So it's not like it's uh, inexpensive. If you wanted to, this friend of mine who wanted to leave his three guns in my safe, uh, that would have been $75 to leave them with me and then $75 more to uh, get them back to him uh, at the end. Uh, or, you know, uh, three felonies each for me and my wife and him and his wife for doing it. I mean, that, that, that's kind of what they're interested That's the rule they're interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, very, it's a very pernicious uh, rule. Um, I've, the, here in Northern Virginia, there's the largest gun show in the Northeast every two or three, two months, I think they have it. I've been going for years and years and years. I've bought almost all but one of my weapons uh, there. I have only once seen one firearm, uh, uh, pistol, rifles different, but pistol. I've only seen one pistol being privately sold in, you know, 10, 15 years of, of going to it. This idea that, you know, these gun shops are, are like bizarre, you know, um, bizarres of unregulated right. weapons is, ridic- is ridiculous. Uh, it, it just doesn't happen. Um, so uh, on the Ayn Rand issue, I, I want to talk to you. I, I do think uh, I do think Ayn Rand was much more friendly to to uh, private firearms ownership in the 1950s when she was re- writing Atlas Shrugged. Um, I, there are a number of uh, there are a couple of places Atlas Shrugged. Um, obviously, the, uh, the the farmers and ranchers who come out and defend the John Galt line on its first run. Right. Um, that was a, it's a very moving scene. And, uh, and then Hank Reardon later in the, uh, in the book, uh, after he's been threatened, carries a weapon. Um, right. And so that, those are very positive, but um, for reasons that remain slightly unclear to me, she got more and more uh, uh, alienated towards uh, gun rights as she grew older. I know many objectivists think that Ayn Rand views on everything never change, but they, they did on some things. I think this is one of them. And she got much more hostile to gun rights, and she wrote a number of things um, in favor of, for instance, gun registration um, hmm. when she, in some of her nonfiction. And uh, registration is the, uh, the holy grail for the left because, sure. of course, once you know, know where all the guns are, you can go collect them. Right. And right. Uh, that has that has happened. It's happening now in New York, in New York State, um, where uh, they instituted gun registration and are going around, you know, house to house and collecting them from people they think are not eligible to have them by whatever uh, rule, arbitrary rules they've defined. So wow. um, now I, I feel that if I, you know, if I could have Ayn Rand in a room and talk to her about it, and she'd probably agree because she's a very rational person. But um, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want people to get the idea that she was not in favor of gun control. Unfortunately, um, she did write some um, positive things about it. And I, I think she's just, it's just a lack of, of knowledge on her part. I don't think she thought gun ownership was very important. She did write that. Uh, yeah, I mean, she she didn't she didn't during her lifetime have a whole lot to say about my pet issue, which is the right to privacy either. And yet, you know, what I've done in so many of the things that I've done in my academic career is imply, you know, take, yeah. take out the implications of her theory for privacy right. and see what I think I would do with it. But yeah, yeah. Um, 
obviously you know our our you know are your views on guns and my views on privacy part of objectivism no because it's what she said but nonetheless we can argue and people can decide for themselves whether they think it's consistent with that view yeah I, I, one of the okay. things one of the fellows in the chat room said something um on the order of uh you know sensible gun control and i i i think that um you know, if I were if I were offered a choice of, of a uh, living in a country with no guns in private hands and and uh, living in a country um, with no gun laws at all, uh, I would certainly live in the latter if given a choice. Um, because I think guns do a lot more good to protect the weak than they do to um, to empower the thugs. Now that's right. a libertarian argument, um, with, you know, because that's fine. I, 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 that's independent of the rights argument, but um, but I do think that the utilitarian argument has some validity as an argument for this. Uh, and now, I did think you, what we're seeing see with the, these. Um, I was going to say, did you see the story where the professors at University of Texas said that they thought if people were allowed to carry guns in class? that it would interfere with the freedom of speech of students, and I guess theirs as well. Yeah, I don't see how that is. Um, we had a meeting, um, work meeting, the other couple of years ago in a hotel, and one of my colleagues came uh, open carrying, and, and the government guys were kind of freaked out at that. I wasn't freaked out at that. Okay, that's, it is sort of odd. Uh, but um, of course, you can't carry in a government facility. But since it was a hotel, you, you can you can do it. Right. Um, I, I do think people get freaked out uh, about guns. Um, I, I don't think that's a rational freak out, but I do think it is is, is something that happens. And uh, when you know I interact with the anti-gun people on Facebook or in real life, it's just you know, hey, come with me to the range. We'll go to the safety issues. We'll go out there. You can see it. You can, right. uh, you know, see how, you know, how safe it is as long as you, you know, follow the safety uh, rules and, uh, you know, how much fun it is. And I I get to some of them that way. I really do. Um, but Excellent. it's, a, you know, it's it's difficult. I've got I've got only a few minutes and I do have another call. Any last word okay. before I say goodbye yeah. for today? Okay, um, no, that's it. Thanks a lot, Amy. No, thank you, Ed, and thanks for joining me as I keep shifting the schedule around here. I really appreciate it. Excellent. So we'll talk to you next time. Let me go ahead and grab this call. Hi, who's this? Hey, it's Bosch. Oh, Bosch, you were able to call in. So I yeah. already did tell the people that you're going to be on the Stossel, Stossel special, John Stossel, oh. this uh, Saturday, right, at 8 p.m. Eastern time? 8 p.m. Eastern on, on Fox News on the on the main channel, Fox News, not Fox Business, which is great. And they're going to replay it a, a number of times. Mark Stein is going to be there, Ayan Harsali, which is great. And the producers told me that they will show the cartoon, that they would show the cartoon, that they, in a number of emails, I hope they do. I'm not sure if they will. I just hope they do. Because if they do, then it, it, it really is a, a good sign for us. But we'll see. But regardless, it was about free speech, and the self-censorship, the way I see it, that's happening about Islam. 
It's really self-censorship. We, can, we have the right to talk about it. People just don't want to. Yeah, I mean, techni- but, uh, technically, our go- our government is not yet saying that we don't have a right to talk about these things, right? That's right. Exactly. They're encouraging us, or they're discouraging us to talk, to tell the truth about Islam, but about it. Right, right. Um, the other topics we've been talking about here are Obama lying about a few things and gun control in general. Um, yep. Probably, probably, I assume you agree with all of, of what has been said. How how is it going for you otherwise? Good. Uh, I, I wasn't able to listen. I was I was uh, back and forth taking care of some, some errands. But uh, I'll definitely listen to the show later. Okay. So um, how are sales of your book going? Good. Uh, they're they're on Kindle now. Um, they, and they're also on uh, on uh, Comixology. Comixology so pe- is people can now People can now get your graphic novel on their Kindle. Yes, yes, they can. All, all the uh, three issues. It, it shot the number one issue. One shot the number one in the military graphic novels, I guess, category, which was okay. uh, a first. Which Congratulations, great. that's awesome. And thanks. Hey, it's also been in other categories, high on other ones, superheroes, graphic novels. Um, but you know, just, just, just looking about that though. If you have one minute, um, my graphic novel, Pigman's in there, yes. But when I created Pigman, I wanted more than just a superhero comic book. So I stepped back and thought about the culture that we live in, the PC culture, the uh, you know, Islamically correct culture that we're entering, where you can't you can only say certain things about Islam. So I said, well, you know what? It'll be interesting maybe to write about basically my situation about creating the character. So I, I, I made a cartoonist who creates the comic book Pigman. So it's a story within a story. And some people might, you know, Pigman is so dominant in the ads and the language. People have always called it Pigman One, Pigman Two, Pigman Three, even though it's called the Infidel. But so it's a story of, of the twin brothers, and the idea is, you know, I split. It, it, it's as if I split myself in two, with the twin brothers. They're redhead, Albanian, you know, Muslim background, born in America, and one post 9/11 completely embraces Islam, uh, and then the other one creates Pigman, and they have a conflict throughout the entire series. So it goes back and forth between the quote unquote real world of Killian Duke, the cartoonist, and the the fictional world of Pigman. And, but they're both battled the same. They're both battling the same enemy, jihad and Islam, in their, in, in their own way. Of course, Pigman does it in a direct, you know, uh, physical way, uh, through through basically his fists. I mean, he's uh, he likes to get right. his, you know he likes, he likes to get his hands dirty with these guys up close and personal. Right. Right. And that's all. Yeah, I, let, I, me, I, let me let me let me um, let me interrupt yeah. you for one second. I'm going to answer uh, Sierra. We have a new listener in the chat room named Sierra. Uh, he says, "Why do you fear Muslims? You need to fear Catholic priests. They do more damage. No, no, they do more damage. They do. Yeah. So, so my answer to him is that it is exceedingly easy for me to stay away from Catholic priests, but Absolutely. it is not very easy these days it, to completely yeah, stay less, away from Muslims yeah. who want to do me harm. As long as yeah. I can stay away from the people who might do me harm, then I'm good." But um, yeah. Anyway, so th- there's there's you know what, my answer. You know would, he, would would this would this person like to go to a convention of Catholic priests or a convention of uh, devout Muslims and go there dressed up like uh, like an infidel, you know, some very very modern clothing, Western clothing. Which one would he rather go to, and which one will he feel safer at? Right. The fact is, all religion is irrational. Absolutely, it absolutely is. This one, particular right now, is the most dangerous today. The most dangerous, and nothing, don't, the other ones don't even come close. So, you know, that's a silly, silly observation. 
Well, anyway, he's he definitely feels safer, I guess, among the Muslims. So, I mean, definitely well, go. That's BS. Make, make your BS. choice. I I make the calculation. It's a lot easier right now for me to stay away from the It's not even just the terrorists. It's not even just terrorists. I've had family members, right, who are not devout Muslims, who are just hostile people. They get into fist fights. It was a it was a regular thing, being fist fights after fist fights in school on the streets. Actually, a good reference lately, um, Ciro, if you're interested in, in doing this, uh, Dr. Michael Hurd, H-U-R-D, just published an article recently on the problems within Islamic culture, and one of them, in, uh, the, one of the main things that he talked about was the role of anger in Islamic culture and the likelihood of acting out on the anger and, and stuff like that. So go so check say, it. Sorry, check let me say it again. As you say, it's far easier for us to avoid that. Muslims are coming for us. They're coming for victims. They're going out of their way in the West now to kill us. Uh, Catholic priests aren't. They, they will sometimes go out to corrupt others, no doubt about it. And they do. But the idea that they are more dangerous than Muslims and jihadists is pathetic. Right. Now, I've got only a minute. It's not just being mistaken. He's He's pushing a lie. I've I've got only a minute, so i got to go. But, yeah, let's tell people, again, watch Fox News Channel 8 p.m. Eastern Time on Saturday. Saturday night, tomorrow. Yeah, Saturday tonight, tomorrow, and then they can see you. And and if they want more information on your comic, they go to your blog at faustin.blogspot.com. Yes. F-A-W. Okay. Great. Okay, so everybody else, um, thanks very, thanks very much, Bosch. We'll talk to you next time. Um, so thanks, thanks everybody, and go to my blog at don'tletitgo.com. Uh, in particular, there's an article there that Rob Abiera sent me talking about a enormous victory against U.S. surveillance that was won by one privacy activist in Europe. Um, the protections that Europeans give to their data, their personal data, is apparently more than ours. And uh, now it's going to actually have a business consequence for the Facebooks and Googles of the world. So go check that out. In addition to other stories I wasn't able to get, I'll talk to you same time next week. Have a good weekend, everybody.